Hello and welcome to this latest GCP short produced in collaboration with friends of the podcast, Morris, Manning and Martin. This episode is all about key considerations for captives when there is merger and or acquisition activity at the parent level. Joining me for the next 15 minutes is Joseph Holohan, partner in the firm's insurance and reinsurance practice and very familiar, I imagine, to many of our regular listeners, and Lisa Willits, a consultant with more than 35 years experience with major insurance carriers and captive programs and owner of Captive Advisory Partners, LLC. Joe and Lisa discuss the due diligence concerning captives that is recommended when an acquisition is taking place, change of ownership regulations, strategies to consider when multiple captives are at play and the process involved for merging existing captives. So for companies that are making an acquisition, Joe, what due diligence needs to be done if the target company is owning a, is a, already owning a captive? The diligence that, that one would do with, on the captive is much like the diligence that would be done on you know the other properties, the other affiliates that are being acquired. Um, but there are some differences, and it depends on the type of captive. So I'm not going to go through through a comprehensive list, but but just to highlight a few things with a pure captive, for example, you, you know of course you're going to want to evaluate the coverage that's in the program and also any reinsurance that may sit on top of it, and especially look for for gap any gaps that there might be. Uh, between the the cover and the reinsurance, important to know if there are any major exclusions in the reinsurance that might prevent a recovery if there were a claim. Yeah, you're also going to want to do as you do with every uh, affiliate is look at the contracts that the affiliate has and, and check for change of control provisions. Sometimes you'll find that um, the target may be a participant in a group captive that presents some different issues. One to uh, especially to be aware of and to, and to check is, are the captive members uh, accessible? If that's the case, then it's going to be especially important to know the financial condition of the group captive, um, if there could be potential liability for an assessment. And then sometimes you'll find, this is rare, less common, but um, we have encountered this a few times where the target has, is either sponsors or risk retention group or perhaps um, there's a risk retention group in the ownership chain. And I think that could be a, a subject for, for its own podcast because uh, risk retention groups are a different sort of animal and present some, some special issues. Um, you know, there's, they, have to, they can only be owned by their insured members um, and there are restrictions on, on who can own them. Uh, for example, uh, an insurance, uh, a traditional insurance company can't own a risk retention group directly or indirectly. So if the company that's, that's acquiring is the purchaser, if, it has a, uh, if it's an insurer or has an insurer in its ownership chain, then, then we'll have to be careful about how the art risk retention group is acquired. Yeah, that's very interesting. Joe, that's not, not an example uh, or scenario I've come across before, but it does, I can see how that could uh, cause problems. One of the other issues, of course, uh, when we're talking about acquisitions involving captors is if there's a change of control needed of the captive. What regulatory approvals would need to be sought with the, with the captive's regulator uh, and domicile uh, to, to make sure that process is smooth? The approval process is, is usually um, fairly simple. Um, it's it's not like acquiring a, uh, an admitted insurer. But with, with this caveat, the, the, the thing that often hangs things up is, especially when there's private equity 
involved in the purchasing, you know, with that, with the purchaser is uh, biographical affidavits. And, and Lisa, I'm sure you've seen this. You go through this dance with the regulator regarding how far up the ownership chain for the purchasing company do you have to go with, with biographical affidavits for the senior executives? And in some of these ownership structures, uh, especially as I say with private equity, you get to these higher, the higher reaches and there's a real resistance and for good reason for to um, you know circulating biographical affidavit with for highly sensitive personal information. So so you you have to have you have get into a bit of a negotiation with the regulator over you know where operational control of the captive really will reside and and uh, and therefore um, you know how far up the ownership chain one needs to go with biographical affidavits. Yes, and we've seen where there have been estates involved and some of the beneficiaries may or may not be cooperative in providing some of that information, which can also hold up some of these changes in ownership. Yeah, and I've certainly come across examples of that actually in, in the formation process of new captors as well, that uh, it gets, goes all the way through the train, it gets all the approvals and the ultimate owner of the company actually has some of those concerns, as you mentioned, Lisa, and doesn't want uh, to kind of go through the process of registering themselves in a new domicile or, or the like. Um, moving the conversation on no further, uh, Lisa, and, and the other scenario with regards to M&A is when two companies come together or one acquires another and both of them already own captives what are the key considerations and options when when this happens in regards to them already owning their own their captive uh, insurance programs i think one of the first things they need to ask is is there a valid business reason for keeping both captives open and running some of those considerations could be relationships do they have a better relationship with a fronting company, which is vitally important, especially right now in such a hard market, and their reinsurance partners, captive managers, domiciles, do they, would they like an onshore and an offshore option, um, relationships with regulators, that sort of thing. The frictional cost, what, you know, what duplication, it all comes down to the cost-benefit analysis, but perhaps the structure of one captive might offer sales and the other one doesn't, depending on domicile. And also, I would say probably the biggest consideration is going to be, is there capital that can be released if one of the captives was to be closed down or a solution found for that? Yeah, on on the on the issue of of trapped uh, capital, as you said, obviously these scenarios can create trapped capital. What are some of the solutions that can be used to to release that? Yes, because there, especially if you're writing anything from workers' compensation, product liability, any of the what we would consider long-tailed risks, there can be significant amounts of capital that are trapped here. Um, some of the options for releasing that would be to sell the captive outright. Another might be to obtain some reinsurance support in a lost portfolio transfer, say, or a novation, which the novation would be replacing the insurance or reinsurance contract back to inception. I always think of this as you take, let's say, captive A has been the reinsurer on a workers' compensation policy, you would take that reinsurance agreement and just replace it with a reinsurance agreement from Captive B and all of the liabilities from 
captive A would then be novated over to captive B. Another option might be a commutation. Maybe you could make an arrangement with the fronting company to take back those liabilities that have been previously reinsured to the captive. All of these agreements are, some of them are two-party agreements, some of them are three-party agreements, and some of them require approval of a regulator, some of them don't. So depending on how far you want to get into that, each one of those should be explored as a viable opportunity. Yeah, and you touched there on obviously some of those scenarios. What um, and you mentioned uh, the importance of maybe good relationships, good existing relationships with uh, fronting partners. What role can existing fronting partners play if you're trying to kind of restructure multiple captive programs in that way? So there are some fronting companies who are certainly open to these agreements. Some of them will even have accommodation for that in the original reinsurance agreement. And I know when working with Joe on reinsurance agreements, that's one of the things they always try to write into that contract. There are many times in the reinsurance agreement, you'll see runoff fees, but a lot of the runoff fees don't really cover a front company's time and expense for that. And they'd rather spend their time creating new relationships and working on things that are that have a future and are going to go forward in a relationship. So many of the fronting companies are going to be open to these solutions, innovations, commutations, and those those conversations, a lot of times the best time to have those are going to be at the beginning of a relationship rather than when you're trying to close things down. But I think you'll find a lot of the fronting companies have people who are very knowledgeable in these areas and who have seen a lot of different solutions And they certainly should be included in those conversations early on. One thing I found is is when I first started doing this, fronts were very resistant to including a commutation clause in the reinsurance contract when it was negotiated. But that's changed, it seems to me. And and I find that the fronts are are more willing to um, contemplate that at the beginning of the relationship so that you could have a clause that would establish a process for for commuting the business if, if, it, if it goes into runoff maybe with um, you know if there's a disagreement about the about what you know the value of the reserves that that that, that could be sent you know that that decision could be made by an independent actuary and, and both parties would would abide by that and make that the basis for the commutation Joe one, one of the um, you know, while we're talking about the scenario where maybe both companies involved in an M&A transaction have captives and in, in, and in some regards they might want to bring those those captives together it caught my eye I was looking at the the latest captive uh, legislation updates to the Vermont captive statute and actually included in those in those changes this year are some minor bits relating to the merging of captives and they are basically that what Dave Provost told me is previously they've kind of relied on uh, on just the kind of the traditional insurance statute when it comes to the merging of insurance companies and, and made that applicable to captives but now they've actually implemented some specific language uh, directly uh, kind of relating to the, the nuances involved with, with captives how useful will it be to have that kind of information on the statute in a jurisdiction like Vermont if if mergers of captives are taking place there? Yeah, that'll, that'll be really, really um, useful and it's very welcome change. With two pure captives, the process to merge them usually isn't difficult, but can be cumbersome, I guess, because of the 
number of different steps that are typically involved. So anything that would streamline that process, um, I think, is, a, is an improvement. This will work well for especially with, if both captives are domiciled in Vermont. If one is domiciled in another state, then you'll have to, you know, of course, go through that state's procedures as well. But you know, anything that can can help streamline that process, I think, is a good uh, is an improvement. One of the other um, possibilities when when two companies come together and maybe uh, the target company again, like we said at the beginning, owns a captive. What considerations need to be made if the captive owner is divesting itself of a particular business segment, which has previously been insured through the captive, so it wants to kind of take out that what would now be, I guess, unrelated business uh, from the captive? Yeah. So if a if a company, for example, is spinning off an affiliate. You know, selling it or selling its assets, and that affiliate has, has been covered under the captive program. You do need to be careful about that. Um, I had a, a situation not too long ago where where a client was was um, sold the sold the affiliate. Uh, there was a lot of negotiation uh, went, went during the um, the purchase and sale process over what claims what claim which claims that were pending. We're gonna which ones we're gonna stay and which one we're gonna go and become the responsibility of the uh, acquirer. So we worked all that out and, and we documented it in the purchase agreement. And I, But I was very glad that we also uh, amended the, pol- the policies issued by the captive to uh, make it clear that, you know, which claims are excluded and, and to uh, endorse, we endorsed them to remove that affiliate as an insured. Because uh, a couple of years later, the purchaser came back and tried to assert a claim against the captive. If we hadn't documented it really carefully, um, you know, I, I think we would have we would have been we would have had trouble. To, uh, and uh, I was glad that we were, we were able to you know deal with it quickly because things were were well documented. Their claim really didn't hold up once we we explained to them you know how how the document what 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 would have been negotiated and what was reflected not only in the purchase agreement but also in the the coverage agreements. So just lastly, Joe, um, you you touched upon this at the beginning with regards to change of control of a captive. I guess it's important to note with the rest of the conversation, though, that uh, it's a lot of the above that we've just discussed will be quite different for risk retention groups. And as you said, possibly deserving of of a completely separate podcast discussion in the the future. Yeah, the, the risk retention groups present special issues. You know, there are many of them out there now that are sponsored uh, by another company. By that, I mean, they're not owned by the company, but they were initially capitalized by that sponsor. And the sponsor may have some rights to control. You may have a, a guaranteed spot on the board or, or some other uh, rights concerning control of the, the risk retention group. And transferring that that sort of control presents special issues. There are other risk retention groups that may, they may, have, may have a single member who's an owner, but has most of the control over the risk retention group because it, it like a like a sponsor, it capitalized the risk retention group and may be responsible for, for uh, administering the program, and that also you know, creates some special issues uh, because you've got all these you know each of the insured members is also an owner, and may have some voting rights. So when you go to affect a change of control, that can that can present some special issues there. So I, I think it's it's probably a subject that we can't get into too deeply. Uh, for, uh, uh, you know, the, during this podcast, but I think it would be, you know, we could we could devote an entire podcast to, to that subject by itself. 
Well, thank you to Joe Holohan and Lisa Willits for a very informative 15 minutes. For more information on both our guests and friends of the podcast, Morris, Manning and Martin, please visit globalcaptivepodcast.com and there are links in our episode description as well. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well and see you next time, captives. Captives.